I'm Steve Fisher, and I'm looking at this little thing of questions here today because I'm not really used to being an MC, but I'm going to do my best, Tom. Let's do it. So my job here at the USCCA is I'm the director of training operations. Now, Tom Grieve, he is the large, he is part of the largest criminal defense firm in the state of Wisconsin, and he's here to answer your questions. And I'll tell you what, he's my attorney. If I get in trouble, I'm going to Tom, and I'm not joking about that. The man is brilliant. That's a full-time job. Just so we're aware, being Steve's attorney. So. Yeah. So we got a guy named uh, Tom. Okay. Tom says, "Great to hear. Look forward to it." So this is how we're much experiencing we're some have technical today. glitches <laughs> at our end right now. So actually, John said, "What is the first couple of things to do after a shooting, besides making sure there's no more threats?" Uh, don't tweet about it or something like that. I mean, I joke, but jeepers, some people these days you really just have to say those sorts of things too, as I've learned. But otherwise, you know, what are the first couple things you do? Okay, you survive the initial threat. So someone may have engaged you with some sort of lethal force, a knife, a gun, whatever it might be in order for you to respond with lethal force. The threat is over, or is it? So step one, all right, the one guy's down or he's out of there, he's fled. How do you know that that's the only guy, right? Mm -hmm. As a former state prosecutor and criminal defense attorney, I've seen a fair amount of street violence, home invasions, you name it. And I'm telling you, they almost never are working alone. It's invariably a group of individuals, usually two or oftentimes three. So just because you got the one guy that you saw, it doesn't mean that there's another guy around the corner with a hammer who's waiting to take your head off, all right? I would say be safe, be vigilant. Uh, from my end, that's what I'm looking at, is to make sure that you've survived that first encounter. It's going to be the second encounter with law enforcement, right? So you're, we're talking about you dialing 911. You're the good guy. You, someone's going to call it in, and it may as well be you. Win that race to 911. And then you've got the third encounter to win, which is going to be the courtroom encounter as well. So that's what we're talking about, identifying the evidence, preserving the evidence, giving some details about, hey, that screwdriver on the floor of my garage, that was the weapon he tried to plunge into my chest, all right? Um, and I'm not being lighthearted about that. That's, that's a real case, okay? So you need to be careful to identify those things and preserve the evidence that you and your attorney are going to be needing later. Okay. We, we talk about assessing the situation. So after you engage or after the threat moves on or is no longer able to engage, we assess the situation. So we're looking for, I believe, three things. Um, we're looking for any additional threats, anything or anybody else that could harm me. Um, I'm also looking for, uh, is there anybody that could help me? I could call somebody in to help, right. you know, and is there a position of advantage that I can go to? Right. So you don't have to stay in that same spot. If you're sitting in the middle of an open parking lot or in the middle of a mall or a restaurant and stuff like that, there's probably some place that you can go to put between you and any potential threats. And keep in mind, you know, Steve's talking about spotting people, and that's, that's fantastic. That's absolutely correct. They might think you're the bad guy, okay? Real case I had here involved a gentleman who had to use his firearm in self-defense. Nobody saw the initial incident, right? <clears throat> because this was out in kind of a suburban setting in a parking lot. Nobody's paying attention to what's happening 100 yards away, but they sure as heck heard the gunshot. So they hear the gunshot, they look over, they just see my client holding a gun. They don't know who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, all right? So again, not to make light of it, but don't be surprised if number one, they're calling the police about you, and number two, don't necessarily be surprised if they're moving away from you, because again, they don't know who the good guy or who the bad guys are here. So just be mindful of the fact that you're a good guy who's concealed carrying, who's open carrying, who's whatever it might be, you're gonna have those things going on there, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that another good guy concealed carrier isn't identifying you as a threat as well. So survive that initial encounter, be aware of the fact that there's 
tons of variables. You're going to have your heart rate up, your adrenaline up, tunnel vision, sound isolation, all those sorts of things. Uh, and you know, what are some of those things, Steve, that, that happens just physiologically to someone during, during a, a shooting, during a traumatic Everything event? Everything becomes distorted. Every one of your senses change. So what is normal no longer is normal. I mean, you can't think cognitively anymore. You can't use your fingers to do small digit types of manipulation because all the blood rushes to the center of your body to keep you alive because it thinks that you're in danger of death, right? So there's all kinds of things. So the time gets distorted. Sometimes it speeds up, time, sometimes it slows down. I mean, there's so many different things. You, you don't hear right, you know? You don't hear anything for a matter, you know, as a matter of fact. So yeah, there's a ton of physiological effects that happen in these types of encounters. Which is the importance of why, and I'll just kind of close this question on this here, John. Um, you want to make sure that this is not the time for you to be giving a full detailed statement to law enforcement or anything of the sort, okay? If the bad guy got away, great. Description, license plate, if you got it, you probably didn't, but description of the vehicle, um, the fact that you were attacked, and otherwise, basically, unless there's evidence on the ground that you need a spot or you know you require medical attention because you've been injured somehow, I'm shutting up and I'm basically waiting for the cavalry to arrive and I'm waiting for, um, I'm raising my right to an attorney. And it's so easy as just saying, look, officer, I want to be cooperative, I want to be respectful and polite, but I'm not answering any questions without speaking with my lawyer. Right. Now, John had part two to this <clears throat> question. He said, can I defend the outside area around my property if necessary? Well, uh, am I defending my property or am I defending me? Because we're not talking about stuff defense or property defense. We're, we're talking about self-defense. But I'm going to be a lawyer here. I'm going to nitpick the question. It says, can I defend the outside area of my property if necessary? Yes, you can defend property, at least here in Wisconsin, to check the local listings for laws in your state, uscca.com forward slash laws, all right? But for instance, here in Wisconsin, we are allowed to use non-lethal, so non-deadly force in order to, to defend property in order, or in order to terminate the unlawful interference with my property. Um, does that mean it's a good idea to go out and start shoving someone who's crawling through my bushes, Steve? No. We tell people all the time, you know, you avoid conflict by avoiding confrontation. So you stay away from the threat. You know, move on, call 911, get the, like you said, the cavalry in this particular case is law enforcement. You know, right. you know, you evade and barricade. Go someplace where you know that you can be safe until the police get there. Right. And, you know, keep in mind as well that um, I appreciate the fact as an attorney that there's something intrinsically unholy about giving money to attorneys. <laughs> I appreciate this fact. People, the surest way to not become a client is do not escalate the situation, which I get it. Nobody likes watching someone crawl through your backyard or something like that. We all want to, and our first reaction, speaking for myself, and I'm sure Steve as well, yeah, our first reaction is to go out there and confront that guy who's doing that. That's not necessarily the smart reaction in the big picture though, okay? Yeah. Next question from Paul. Um, Paul writes to us, can a cop legally disarm you during a routine traffic stop, citing officer safety? Definitely, maybe. <laughs> That's the answer to it. Um, different, different law enforcement agencies have different standard operating procedures. That's not to say that they're all constitutional, legal, or for that matter, moral or fair or just. Um, courts, however, there's a lot of case law, a lot of decisions out there that do go and stand for the premise that officers are often given a, 
a broad amount of deference when it comes to officer safety. Um, so unfortunately, you know, in order to figure out the exact context of a specific scenario, I would need to know the facts, I would need to know the laws, Paul, that apply to that particular case. But big picture, courts are gonna give a lot of latitude for officer safety. And you know, that kind of brings up the overall question of if I'm in a traffic stop and a cop starts asking questions and so forth, um, how do you advise students, you know, as, as a top trainer, how do you talk about, okay, I'm, I'm interacting with law enforcement. What do you teach students as far as how do you survive? How do you get through that encounter? It's very simple, comply. You know, be compliant, be cooperative, you know, communicate openly and clearly, hide nothing. You know, this person is under a lot of stress. And if you do one little thing that makes them think that you now have engaged them, bad things are gonna happen for you. So hands where they can see them, right. face them, communicate clearly, don't do it in an agitated fashion. Don't escalate the situation. Just listen to them. It'll be over with before you know it. Right. And guys, nobody's saying that this is necessarily always the most fair way of handling it. Mm -hmm. And while the vast majority of law enforcement, in my experience, they're not out there to pick a fight or look for problems. You do catch sometimes the wrong officer or the wrong officer on the wrong day. Um, you are not going to make things better by throwing it back at them. You're just not. In fact, there's no way you're gonna win that encounter. Let me just take that a next step further. You are going to lose that encounter because you're the person who's gonna wind up getting arrested and having to pay money for an attorney, okay? Um, so again, we're not telling you necessarily what you may always wanna hear, but we're telling you the truth. And we're not here to defend and say, isn't this great? We're saying this is what you need to be hearing, okay? So we've got the next question. Uh, what should you do in an encounter where the threat has ended, the attacker is injured? Should I treat his wounds or should you wait on the first responders to arrive? My concern is, what if I get too close to the attacker and they try something again? From a training perspective, I guess, what, what would you say about that? So somebody just tried to shoot you, you shot them once, they're on the ground, you know, gun is still in their hands or it's within their reach. How are you handling that? How are you, how are you talking to students about that? Look for that position of advantage, you know? Move away from, call 911, and then be a very good witness from that time forward. So you're not, we don't teach people that they should go to render aid uh, with somebody that just tried to, to kill them, to harm them. We teach you how to stay safe so you can go back to your family at night. Right. You know? Right, and you know, it's not Hollywood, right? Because in Hollywood, Steve, the good guy shoots the bad guy, the bad guy falls over dead, and the that's dead it. goes and kicks the gun away. Right, and he kicks the, bad, right. the gun to the back of their head. But in real life, I mean, how many, how many cases have you and I both read about? Real life scenarios, real life gunfights, good guy, bad guy, or maybe bad guy, bad guy is the case maybe, where somebody's taken five, six, seven, eight rounds, maybe even close to center mass, and they haven't gone down yet. Keeps They're like, still in the fight. Yeah. So I think that gets, just gets back to the question of, um, just because someone's down, number one, I wouldn't assume speaking outside my role as an attorney and just speaking as a guy who's into firearms and into the training, the knowledge and the education here that we're all here to talk about. I'm not assuming that just because that guy is down, he's out. Right. Those are two very different things. Right. And we also don't know if he has another weapon. Could be playing possum. Could be playing possum, yeah. and he could have a buddy around the corner who's ready to take your head off. Yep. Yep. So, um, and certainly from the legal side, again, uscca.com forward slash laws. Steve, I'm unaware of any state that says that if somebody just tried to kill you, you now have a duty to render aid. Yeah, okay, I'm not aware of it either. Um, I'm not aware of it. 
Um, hopefully we're not giving ideas for, for the, the great garden state of New Jersey or California to, to take up some action here. Um, but it's very true. I'm, I'm unaware of any legal duty. Um, and keep in mind, could that be beneficial to show that you weren't trying to kill someone or you're just trying to stop the threat? Arguably, yes. But frankly, I'm more concerned about you surviving the encounter. Right. So What we tell people to do isn't always what people are going to do. There's some right. very kind-hearted people that are willing to defend themselves. And if they do put a few bullets into somebody that they drop, you know, they have to live with that the rest of their life. And if that means that they have to, in their heads, um, psychologically and emotionally justify their actions by then saying, at least I tried to keep them alive, or at least I did keep them alive by rendering aid, right. then that's what you do. But we teach people to stay safe so you can get home to your family, right. so get some distance and call the police. Both you and your loved ones are going to be living with the outcome from this event. Both the, the real-life implications of I'm injured and now walk with a limp, or maybe I didn't survive, um, the legal implications, as well as the spiritual and moral implications. So we have to compete and survive against all three of those, those problems, those dynamics at once, both in the short term, but also the midterm and the long term, um, which I think goes right to your point. Yep. So let's, see, let's get the next question. Yeah. So I'm in uh, really poor health. I have a bad heart, and I'm handicapped. And this is from Michaela, who's asking this question. This is Michaela? Yeah. Okay. So that being said, is my yardstick for, quote-unquote, beard for my life the same as a healthy person? Uh, I mean by that, uh, a punch to my chest could kill me. Right. Well, at the end of the day, the laws as far as using deadly force are not going to be changing, right? If you're in reasonable fear in Wisconsin... The formula is basically, if you're in reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm, I can now use deadly force. At the end of the day, you get to these interesting factors, such as um, somebody who's in very poor mental health, like the questioner here. You get to somebody who, um, I mean, you, you could just do endless permutations on it. At the end of the day, the laws don't necessarily change, but the factors that may influence when those laws apply could change. Okay, so as an example, if you have somebody who's wheelchair bound and some guy who's six foot five, 300 pounds is coming up to you with a billy club saying he's about to kill you or something like that, um, yeah, that, I mean, that might be a threat no matter who you are for that matter, but um, that's obviously gonna be very different. So long story short, I would say that yes, things are gonna be changing, but keep in mind that our justice system, for better or worse, affords prosecutors an enormous amount of discretion as far as who they believe uh, was in the right and who they believe is in the wrong. And if they believe that you acted too quickly in pulling that trigger, even though a jury may disagree with them, you're going to be in for quite a ride. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you know, you're, you're trigger happy or anything of the sort. I just want to make sure that we all understand that, look, there's going to be a price to be paid for this. And um, probably no matter what, going back to those moral and spiritual dynamics and implications. But we certainly want to avoid, at a minimum, the legal implications as well, beyond, of course, surviving the incident. So just be very careful about the fact that these can be very fuzzy lines, particularly when we're talking about an unarmed attacker who may be physically superior to you. Um, these can be very, very gray and challenging lines for the justice system. Yeah. Next question. Byron Patterson asked... Well, he said, I know in Wisconsin you can't have a drop of alcohol when carrying a firearm, but what about carrying a knife? 
So <clears throat> here's what the law in Wisconsin is for intoxicated possession of a firearm, okay? Is you cannot be materially impaired. Now to be clear, Byron, I'm not saying go out and have a couple drinks as long as you're not materially impaired. I'm just restating what the law is. Now, what you might be referencing is the fact that you cannot have a drop of alcohol if you're carrying in, I forget if it's a class B or a class A establishment, it's code for a bar or a tavern or something like that, right? That's, that's a strict no-go. You cannot be carrying and drinking while out. And to be clear, I am telling you, my legal advice is strict no-go. Do not mix alcohol and firearms, all right? But if we're being specific, then the state of Wisconsin says that you, you cannot be materially impaired when carrying a firearm, okay? And materially impaired, by the way, is not .08. Materially impaired is when you are materially impaired. That might be one shot of communion wine that, well, let's just leave the barrier there. <laughs> um, so keep in mind that those are the standards. It's not a .08 standard. It's not that four or five drinks, whatever .08 might be for you. It's materially impaired. So different states may address this to handle this different ways. But specifically now talking about knives, I mean, so in Wisconsin, I'm unaware of any of any um, law that would go towards uh, being materially impaired while carrying a knife, that isn't to say that prosecutors couldn't get creative and start charging recklessly endangering safeties. They couldn't start charging disorderly conduct uh, or something like that. Um, because keep in mind that as a criminal defense attorney and a former state prosecutor, I'm dealing with you after the cops dealt with you. There's a reason why the cops dealt with you, okay? And it probably wasn't because you were quiet acting appropriately, minding your own business 100% of the time, um, something happened. And I'm not saying to be clear, Byron, that you're the one that caused that to happen. You could have been the victim as well. But something happened, and it created facts. It created a fingerprint of context. And that fingerprint of context is going to really be what will ultimately inform the prosecutor and possibly the judge and jury to figure out what's going on with your case. So to my knowledge, there's no necessarily direct law. I think there's backdoor laws that prosecutors and law enforcement can use to charge you with carrying uh, a knife. And But this all needs to be interpreted through the proper framework, the proper lens of what's the this, this specific facts and context to whatever scenario that gave rise to you interacting with law enforcement. That's a good question. Yeah. So what are legal issues with carrying a second backup gun and or a less lethal weapon such as pepper spray? How many, in, in your training, how many guys do you see talk about or ask about or carry second backup guns or pepper spray as a backup to a firearm? Well, there's some people that their EDC um, is quite, you know, they, they got a lot on them, right? And there's other people that are minimalists, such as myself. I, ha I have a flashlight, I have a knife, I have a firearm, and I have an extra ma a magazine. I don't carry pepper spray. I don't carry a taser. Well, that doesn't sound like a minimalist. I mean, you just said four things. And what were those one more time? <laughs> so flashlight, flashlight, knife. Knife, firearm, and an extra magazine. An extra mag. Yep. I mean, that's, usually when I hear minimalist, I'm thinking somebody's carrying, you know, a Glock 43, a Glock 26, right. something like a subcompact, no backup mags, yeah. or, or just a knife or something like yeah, that. Yeah, some people are, are they're gonna strap on just like as if they're going to work as a law enforcement officer. They got their duty belt filled with all kinds of things. You know, everybody, to each their own, um, but I carry what I think that I need to get through the day each day, right? right. So it's really simple. Um, are there issues, are there legal issues with carrying a second backup gun? Keep in mind that in certain states there may be restrictions or regulations that you're only allowed to carry the specific firearm that you qualified for. So, you know, as an example, it used to be that some states said that if you qualified for your concealed carry license, 
with a revolver, then you can only carry a revolver, or vice versa for a semi-automatic. So you get into some weird issues like that. Um, but of course, as long as you're complying with local laws, which I think goes directly to the question is, what are the local laws? USCCA.com forward slash laws to look into all that. Bonnie here at the USCCA does a fantastic and also, it's literally a full-time job for her updating and keeping this as fresh and as relevant of a database or resource for everybody possible. It's entirely free to use. Anybody can check it out. So it's great. It's a great source to just link out there on forums if you're discussing things. Um, but there's no issues like that in Wisconsin. Let's put it that way. Um, but again, check your local listings. Yep. All right. Keith. Keith asks, if I'm driving my vehicle, what are my rights? And what are my requirements for carrying a weapon? Loaded slash unloaded. Concealed slash unconcealed. Location in the vehicle. The type of weapon. And what U.S. state? <laughs> There's a lot of questions inside there, isn't there? And uh, 10 words or less, right, Keith? <laughs> Wow, so there's a lot to that question. And there's a lot of that I don't know, believe it or not. I mean, Keith, you packed a lot in there. But so, for instance, I don't know if you're an over-the-road trucker and you're driving interstate. I don't know if you got your family and your kids in the back seat and you're taking a road trip across four different states to go camping somewhere. Believe it or not, these all arguably trigger different laws. So, for instance, if you're traveling interstate across state lines, so you're going from one state, you're crossing two states, and you're landing in the fourth state, right? So now the Firearm Owners Protection Act, which is going to be the federal law that deals with basically traveling interstate with firearms. The gist to it, Keith, is that you have to make sure that your firearm and all your components, i.e. your ammunition, because keep in mind, to my knowledge, it's illegal to be carrying hollow point ammunition outside the home in New Jersey, as an example. Um, and not to mention, of course, moreover, magazines. You know, 10-round magazine restrictions tend to be a big one when you start talking about traveling between states as well. Um, you need to make sure that the firearm and all of your components are legal in both the origin state and the destination state of wherever it is that you're going. And then basically keep it locked in a case out of reach so it's inaccessible to anybody. So if you've got a sedan, it's in, it's in the trunk. If you've got an SUV, it gets a little bit trickier, but I'd say just bury it basically in the back. Keep in mind that certain states you may have a duty if you do get pulled over for speeding or something like that. You may have a duty to declare all firearms in the car and if you fail to do so, and if, of course if you get caught, it could be a crime. Um, so just be mindful, again, uscca.com forward slash laws to, to get yourself up to speed and all that. But that's the way that you travel from and to a place. And then lastly, you're not allowed to dwell in any place where that might be illegal to possess. Okay. So for instance, you do have a high, well, a normal capacity magazine, I would say. So you've got a, a 15 round Glock 19 a 9 millimeter magazine, um, and you're traveling through a state which only has a 10 round magazine capacity. You're not allowed to dwell there. What does dwelling mean? Frankly, whatever the prosecutor and jury says it means, mm -hmm. I hate to say it. So um, just be mindful that you run into some aggressive law enforcement, you run into some aggressive prosecutors, and an unforgiving jury, you're in for quite a ride, okay? Um, but otherwise, generally speaking, keeping things, I, I mean, I hate to say it, if unloaded, locked, encased, out of reach, inaccessible, um, is generally speaking a safe thing, provided that origin and destination are lawful and we don't dwell, that's going to be a safe way for carrying a weapon. So, yep. Get online and check out the laws in each state. You're going to, where you start, where you're going through, and where you're going to finish. Something that we've never actually talked about, Steve. So, you know, we all drive cars, right? I mean, I mean, most of us who don't live in some sort of major urban metropolis drive cars to and from places. Um, we've talked about loadouts for concealed carry. You kind of touched on a little bit of, of what you do. 
Are there specific loadouts, or what are some of the what are the, some of the better, and more creative, and maybe more advanced things that people use to carry in a car? Like, what kind of setups did, might they have as far as this is where I do this, this is where I do that, and and I assume you're not going to be recommending, you know. So just to be clear, we're in a place where it's legal to carry all this stuff, so we're not worried about storing or anything like that. But um, you know, I'm not talking about glove box carry or anything like that. But what kind of stuff would you recommend, or have you seen trainers recommend? Um, that might be unique to a car, a truck, something like that. Yeah, well, it starts with, are you comfortable um, getting into your vehicle and driving with it where you have it in your carry position right. all the time? So if you're not, then you need an alternative. Uh, we recommend always that you keep it on your body, but you also have to be able to get to it, right? Right. So there are holsters that mount underneath the front of your seat. There are holsters that mount on the uh, visor, the, the window visor sure. and stuff like that. There are things that you can put in your console next to you. Again, we don't advise that these guns are laying loosely. They should be holstered even if you have them in a console or in a glove box because they're going to move around and you want to make sure right. you keep that thing safely covering the trigger, right? right? So, yeah, there's a lot of options. And some people, when they go, let's say, to a school or someplace else where they can't take the firearm in with them, you know, then we advise that they lock it up. You know, you can secure some of these lock boxes to the frame of the vehicle, you know, and lock it either with a key, code, or bio fingerprint. Right. You know, so that's kind of what we talk about. You know, on the subject of bio fingerprints, so, uh, you know, my wife got me a uh, one of those biometric scanner things. I'm not going to mention the brand or anything like that, but we're having a heck of a time making that thing work. I mean, I was futzing with it the other day, and I mean, let's put it this way, if I'm relying on that to save my life, like, I'm dead. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, are, is, this, is this common to biometrics, since you mentioned biometrics, or did I just get a bad unit, do you think? You might have gotten a bad unit. Again, I'm not sure which one that you're using. Right. I have one myself, and I've never had an issue with it. Okay. Um, the reason that I got that was because I have a family friend who had a domestic issue and her ex-husband came back with bad intentions and mm -hmm. she barricaded herself into her bedroom while he proceeded to punch holes through the door. Wow. She couldn't remember the code to her safe. She couldn't get into it. Now there's a backup key. She couldn't get the key into the lock either. Right. So that experience kind of motivated me to go the biometric way. Gotcha. And I've had no problems. Okay. You know, sometimes people, when I have to do my fingerprint for the, we have a little cafe downstairs, sometimes it doesn't read my fingerprint down there. So I don't mm. know if it's the oils in my fingers or mm. just that's a bad unit too. Yes. But. Hmm. Interesting. So make sure you get a good unit. You make sure you get a you good unit. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Troy asks, can you discuss duty to retreat? Does it require you to run away if able, even if it means you abandon those who cannot defend themselves. Gotcha. So again, of course, Troy, duty to retreat, you're going to have to take a look to see uscca.com forward slash laws. But for those of you who may not be familiar, what Troy is referencing with the duty to retreat is basically saying that if escape is an option, somebody's pointing a gun at you, somebody's pulling a knife at you, they're you know coming at you through the parking lot, you have a duty before you use deadly force to, to exhaust all of your options to retreat from that scenario. So you have to basically run away. Now keep in mind, going back to the question we had from Michaela earlier on, if you're wheelchair bound, that's gonna obviously change your duty to retreat options, right? And sometimes we've seen some horror stories as far as what do courts and what do juries construe as being within the bounds of duty to retreat. In other words, do you have an obligation to jump out a second story window? 
Um, those sorts of questions are, are out there. But the general notion, Troy, about duty to retreat is that until our back is against the wall, so to speak, all right, um, and I'm pulling that from an old British case that actually discusses duty to retreat and so forth, um, until your back is against the wall, you cannot use deadly force. Only until we have no other options to escape, and then, if confronted with deadly force, may we use deadly force. But, of course, the monkey wrench you're throwing in there is you're throwing in there of, well, what about other people? Well, keep in mind, many states, most states, almost all states, to my knowledge, again, USCCA.com forward slash laws. And guys, if you get tired of hearing me say that, it's because it's that important. That's why. Okay. Um, but we have a duty, or not a duty, pardon, but you have... Um, the right to defend third parties from a potentially deadly threat or something like that. So um, obviously if it's two healthy, you know, 20 some odd year old males who can both sprint and run, they both were on varsity track team, yeah, a judge, a jury, a prosecutor may be looking at that duty to retreat somewhat differently as compared to, um, you know, not to pick on people, but, you know, a couple of baby boomers um, who've retired down to the Sunshine State and, uh, you know, they were... They were going grocery shopping or something like that. You know, your, your ability to outrun an able-bodied attacker is going to be different. And to be sure, morally, I don't believe in a duty to retreat. Okay, so I'm not endorsing that, and hopefully no one's taking this as, as Tom's endorsing morally the duty to retreat. What I am endorsing is following the laws wherever you are, okay, because rest assured, those will catch up with you. Um, is duty to retreat something you, you, you deal with in your... Um, in your training classes, is that something that you've seen that's out there that's live? I mean, I know there's a couple states, a couple in the Northeast and so forth at a minimum, in addition to a few others where there's kind of soft duties to retreat or hard duties to retreat. Yeah, we talk about it, but it's so subjective that it's hard to really get deep into it, right. you know, because it's situational. You know, if, if it, like you said, if it's somebody that's almost ambulatory, they can't move on their own, are you going to run away from them and leave them right. standing there? Think about what that's going to look like. I th you got to look at it through the eyes of the jury again, too. Right. What are they going to judge? What would a reasonable person do in that case? And I mentioned soft versus hard duty to retreat. So let's just define that a bit. In Wisconsin, there is no legal duty to retreat. However, if you looked at the jury instructions, uh-oh, what are we talking about here? Jury instructions. Jury instructions is basically how the law really works, folks. This is something that few outside of the lawyer profession know about jury instructions. We all know about the statutes, right? This is what the legislature in your particular state or U.S. Congress wrote. We all know about case interpreted, so case law, right? Which is basically saying this facts, these facts fall outside the Constitution or the statutory interpretations that were created by the legislature, or they fall within the Constitution. They may also say that the statute, in other words, the laws, are unconstitutional, right? That's case law. Um, but when we're talking about uh, issues, I just lost my train of thought entirely there. Next question. <laughs> Next question. It's going to come back to me. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, let's see. We're talking about jury. Oh, jury instructions. Sorry about that. So we're talking about jury instructions. I don't think it's ever happened to me in all my years of, of coming here. I don't think it's because I'm here. I've been able to avoid it. Yeah, I don't know. It's something about his deep blue eyes, folks. I don't know. Um, so jury instructions. Jury instructions is if you're at an actual jury trial, the law is not given to the jury by reading out of a statute book or reading out of a case law, right? If you ever try to do that, particularly statutes, it is boring, it is technical, it, it's borderline English at best sometimes, okay? Um, instead, the law is basically turned into ordinary English, 
and it's broken down by what we call jury instructions. And jury instructions, they break everything down into the elements, okay? So this is basically the law that the jury's gonna hear, right? And sometimes there's a little bit of daylight between what the case law or what the legislature created and what, what the, the jury instructions are. Case in point, in Wisconsin, there's no duty to retreat. However, in the Wisconsin self-defense jury instructions, they talk about the fact that the jury may consider whether or not retrieval was an option. That sounds like a little bit of a backdoor duty to retreat, right? Now, there's no duty to retreat, but the jury instructions throw out that, hey, this is something you can consider. So that's obviously something that your attorney needs to know about. By the way, most states, you can find the jury instructions online with some Googling, different states of different laws. I don't know why, but here in Wisconsin, the jury instructions, to my knowledge, are the only state where they're actually copywritten by the state, by the way. So you have to go to a state law library or something like that to get your hands on it. So it is still publicly available technically, but it may not be available online. But yeah, jury instructions are a very big thing to know about that not many people know about. So Good advice. Right. Good advice. So the next question is, if you have a concealed carry permit, can you have your firearm in the open while driving in your vehicle? Or must it be concealed? <clears throat> Well, it's gonna depend upon what your transportation laws as well as what your open carry laws are. So if you have a concealed carry permit, and we're assuming that basically the only way that you can legally carry a firearm in your state is to conceal it, then if it's open and people can see it, it's by definition not concealed, right? But conversely, there's a difference between carrying and transporting. So if you're transporting the firearm, we may be using different laws now. We may be using transportation laws. So that could be a little bit of a different effect where, you know, maybe you have a concealed carry, uh, maybe you're not allowed to open carry firearms in your particular state, but you are allowed to mount them in your pickup truck's gun rack or something like that in the back window. So again, it's, law is tricky. I'm not saying it should be, I'm just saying it is, okay? But we just have to be mindful of the fact that there can be a difference, can be, not, not always, a difference between carrying versus transporting that can come into effect there. So you really gotta dive into your local laws to figure out which scenario, which facts trigger transportation, which facts trigger carry, and sometimes, I hate to say it, but which facts may trigger both, right? You put a firearm in your passenger seat, you're the driver, um, I'm telling you right there that they're probably gonna treat that as a carry issue. Um, but I could also see, frankly, an advantageous prosecutor also rolling that as transport if they really want to. They're gonna, they're gonna often do whatever it is they need to do uh, from their perspective. And I'm not saying, again, that's fair. I'm just saying, welcome to my day, folks. Yeah, I'm not sure why anybody would do that, to be honest with yeah. you. I mean, because it opens up more issues that are bad than good. Right, yeah, yeah it's gonna make you a target. I mean, yeah. um, you, you having a fire ammonia, I'm telling you, as somebody who, back in her lifetime, used to, you know, I, I still a criminal defense attorney, represent good people on a bad day now. You don't start there in the private sector. I started out representing some folks who were a little rough around the edges. Um, they are targeting people who they think have guns. They are targeting people to, to rob and steal, and they're looking for poor situational awareness, by the way. Um, so you put a firearm on the dashboard, then if you're watching your cell phone or something, you're asking it, for it's it. not a deterrent. It's actually bait in it is. many cases. It people is. are going to go for that gun. Right, right. So. absolutely. Mike C. asked, I'm curious if having that second gun, I'm curious if having that second gun carried would, comma, in the aftermath of a deadly force encounter, comma, shape the follow-up by police or judge or jury in a negative slash detrimental way. Well, we're assuming that there's nothing like Punisher decals or 
you know, smile for flash or, you know, we're assuming that there's nothing there that's really going to throw the factor out of it. We're assuming these are just generic, you know, there, there's nothing, there's nothing that we don't see coming, let's put it that way. Um, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I have seen prosecutors in court uh, call all hollow point ammunition cop killer bullets. Um, I have seen judges in court claim that all full metal jacket, which is kind of the opposite, I realize there's soft points, but which is more or less the opposite of hollow points, say that that's military grade ammunition and no one needs to have that, okay? I am less worried with what can be said. I'm more worried about someone stepping in it by having their Punisher decals and the, you know, your dead sucker, the kind of stuff. I'm worried about people stepping in it. And then otherwise, if the prosecutor's gonna go down that road, it is what it is, trust me, we were never gonna be able to stop them. Um, but don't do anything to make that worse, right. certainly. Yeah. Survive it's, the initial Including encounter. how do you cooperate with the law right. enforcement when they, when they come about. Absolutely. Beverly, Beverly asks, what is the best self-defense concealed carry handgun in size, weight, and knockdown power? I'm glad someone finally asked this question because we can just put this to rest, right? Yeah, it's the one that works for you. Right. You know, uh, you know, have a good trainer help you fit that gun. As far as what the knockdown power is, the knockdown power is how accurate you are in your defensive shooting. So, I mean, 22s can get the job done if you're accurate with that 22, all the way up to the 10 millimeters. I know you have a 10 millimeter that we had some fun shooting this summer too. So you can go small and big, but you have to shoot it accurately. And doing some research about the proper ammunition to carry with it. Don't just buy the cheapest stuff because if you really get into, ammunition's a whole different category from firearms, and I'm not trying to throw more things at you, Beverly, but you can take the same firearm and change the ammo up, and it may feel very hard to shoot because it's, it's snappy and it recoils a lot versus very soft. But we wanna make sure that the comfortable to shoot firearm is also the one that's going to effectively stop the threat. So certain ammunition may be very good at that, other ammunition may be very poor at that. Finding a knowledgeable trainer, finding a knowledgeable local firearm store, something like that um, could go a long way to helping you find what's the right fit for you. Yeah, size and weight matters in this particular case. Size and weight, if it doesn't fit your hand, you're not gonna shoot it right. You know, if it's too big, you can't conceal it. And if it's heavy, it'll handle the recoil better, but also it becomes a a bit of a burden carrying it all day long too. Right, and just those few ounces make a difference. And to exactly you know Steve's point there, which is um, that is so important because the firearm you're not carrying is of no help to you. Okay, um, so you, it's only helpful if you actually carry it. All right, so I cannot stress enough: find a comfortable holster. Um, as my wife could tell you, um, I've got a couple boxes full of holsters that I rotate between and find different things that I like. Um, there's a lot of great brands out there, but find something that, that's comfortable for you. There's a really good chance it's not gonna be the first one that, that you find, all right? Um, if you're in the Kansas City area, I know there's actually gonna be, I'm just gonna do a shameless plug for the USCCA <laughs> um, Expo coming up. I've been at the last few expos, and um, there's a lot of holster manufacturers that are there that allow you to try things out. Yep. So it's a great, it's a great opportunity. It's, I think it's March 19th and 20th in Kansas City coming up. So mark your calendars, check it out. But otherwise, you know, go go to your local firearm store, ask them if it's okay. If, can I open this up? Can I try it on? Odds are they're going to say yes, right. um, and and try it out, okay? Um, because the super cheap one is probably not going to be the right way of doing it. And it, folks, if you intend to carry inside the waistband or something like that, having a great belt makes all the difference in the world.
Yeah, 80% of the accidents occur when you're taking the gun out of or putting the gun back into the holster. So get a good quality holster. Right, absolutely. All right, when faced with a mass shooting incident, what is the legal position on taking down the shooter even if you're not a direct victim? Well, I mean, so if you're in a crowd of people and the bad guy's shooting into a crowd of people but just hasn't hit you or hasn't hit you yet, I'd still argue you're a victim, right? Because you may be an intended target. Um, but otherwise, look, it's, if it's not defensive self, which is the scenario that I just painted, maybe if the bad guy's shooting in the entirely opposite direction into a random crowd of people, now we're talking about defensive third person. So this is where, particularly where it's very cut and dry, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy in a mass shooter incident, um, your state, check your local listings, uscca.com forward slash laws, we're talking about use of force for a protection of third parties. You're protecting the other individuals who are downrange of the bad guy. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, we, we talked about this a little bit before, but what are some of the factors uh, as far as looking at that target that people People are considering, people are weighing. Can you isolate the target? Can you identify the target? Can you isolate the target? If, if you have those two things, then can you place that shot accurately to be able to stop the threat? Right. Without causing or, you know, adding to the potential of collateral damage. Right. But if, what happens if you can't isolate the target? If, you know, he's moving around, um, you know, it's, it's something like that. I mean, it's, I, people talk about, you know, the greater danger theory and so forth. What would, what would, what would Steve Fisher say? Well, I tell everybody all the time, you, you need to get out of there, okay? You need to get out. Everybody needs to get out of there. You don't want to turn yourself into a 100 killer. That's not your job. That's not how you've been trained. You know, let the police get in and do their jobs. If you have an opportunity to take out the bad guy, you take the opportunity, but your first obligation is to get out. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And keep in mind, you're, you're not the only person there. Whether they're physically there or not, your spouse, your kids, your future kids, all those people are with you as well. So just keep that in mind that a lot always rides in your decision no matter what you decide to do. Okay, Bob asked, or actually is this one from Tango Juliet One? Uh, what are the dangers in using a trained protection dog? You switched off of the screen. There you go, Paul, thank you. <laughs> what are the dangers in using a trained protection dog versus a firearm or other weapon in self-defense? What about in conjunction with a firearm? Is there greater liability? A trained protection dog. Great question. I, you know, we've gotten a couple questions today I don't think we've ever seen in our <coughs> year plus of doing the Ask Me Anything for the Attorneys and going back, I don't know how many years, or, or you know, I've been involved with the USCCA now, just kind of taking questions and, and, and doing my best to fumble with them on camera. Um, so trained protection dogs, generally speaking, most states uh, animals are going to be considered property, okay, which means that liability will attach, so to speak. And that could be civil liability, i.e. we're talking about money in lawsuits. It could be criminal liability. We're talking, well, still money, but we're also talking about jail, prison, felonies, and so forth, okay? Um, I don't think I've, I've seen a case where somebody other than law enforcement have used a trained canine uh, to... Uh, to, to take down a bad guy or something like that. Um, I mean, I've certainly seen law enforcement use dogs. Um, but at the end of the day, I'd say, look, if you've, trained your, if you've trained your dog to attack in your command, if you command it to attack, that if that, if that dog jumps up and rips up someone's throat, uh, 
yeah, there's a there's a decent chance you're going to be held liable for yeah. that. It's it's not a protection against liability. Yeah, you're going to have to answer to it. Right, you're going to have to answer to that. So that's where the dog's training and all those sorts of things come into into account. And keep in mind that dog just pops off on its own. Um, you may also be liable. So you have to be very careful about those sorts of things. Good question, though. Yeah, great question. Yeah. Now we've got Tango Juliet one. Uh, I have a CCW and my gun is holstered in the center console or glove compartment. My girlfriend is not a CCW. Is this a problem with her sitting next to the gun? Gotcha. So uh, I've seen these sorts of questions arise a lot in the context of bail conditions. So um, somebody is, uh, has had to use a firearm in self-defense, and now they're being charged with a crime maybe. Um, a very common bail restriction, again, I'm not saying you gotta like it or love it, I'm just saying here we are. Very common bail restriction that people are often placed under is they are not allowed to possess any firearms. Well, odds are, if you're watching this, you probably own more than one firearm. So I assure you that if you've been involved in a self-defense shoot, the police have that gun at a minimum. They have that firearm as now evidence. But there may be other firearms in your home. So if you're not allowed to possess any firearms, uh, does that mean you have to get them all out of your home? Does that mean that, well, you know, what about my wife's gun? What about my husband's gun? Whatever it might be. Um, how do you factor all those sorts of things in? At the end of the day, number one, we have to look at the possession laws, okay? Possession laws are set up to get drugs, all right? In other words, um, if you basically have knowledge and if it's accessible within your area, then you are in possession of it, okay? Um, and that has to do with the fact that, you know, whenever the cops roll up on someone and find a bunch of cocaine in a car, it just never seems to belong to anyone. It just, you know, I, I don't know how it got there. I don't know how it got in my sock. You know, it's just, oh, these are my cousin's socks. These aren't even my socks. <laughs> I don't even dress myself, right? So a lot of the laws are keyed not to ownership, but they're keyed to possession, and they're deliberately meant and they're interpreted to be rather vague and nebulous to allow law enforcement and prosecutors to basically go after typically drugs. The problem is that those same tools then get turned against us and you down the lens on these sorts of questions, Tango Juliet. So, um, number one, if she's not lawfully able to possess that and if she's aware of it, and if law enforcement can prove both of those, um, and the fact that it's accessible, presumably, it's not like it's a locked glove box and you're the only one with a key or something, then there's at least an argument that she may be illegally concealed carrying that firearm. Now that's where, number one, again, they're gonna have to prove that she had knowledge, they're gonna have to prove that it was accessible and so forth, um, but it's really going to come down to a lot of discretion with law enforcement and the prosecutors of are they going to arrest her, are they going to arrest you, are they going to charge her, are they going to charge you? Yeah, you as well, because after all, um, what happens if for some strange reason there's some sort of, you live in Washington State, and well, that person now has possession of the firearm and you didn't go through a, the mandatory universal background check system, right? This is the, this is the world we now live in, right? That was a great question, by the way. You know, I never even thought about it. Right. But I do have an answer for you. Get her concealed carry permit. Oh, look at this guy. <laughs> look at this guy. That's why he's the trainer. Look at this guy. <laughs> Bob said, you're sitting at home in the evening and all of a sudden, someone is trying to break through your front door. In a panic, you grab your pistol and pump a couple of rounds through the door. What are, what are, your, what are the repercussions? Um, so, uh, right, and, and Bob, we've, we've seen the questions on shooting through doors. Um, I know I'll answer for Kevin, uh, don't do it, yeah. okay? 
um, because we don't know who's broken in. We don't know necessarily whether or not Castle Doctrine, as an example, may have attached yet. Um, so, uh, you know, Castle Doctrine is basically creates a presumption that under the law you can now use deadly force. But anytime you hear the P word presumption, it's followed by this R word called rebuttable. And that presumption will attach at different points. So for in Wisconsin, it's if you have broken into or, or in the process of breaking into my home, and assuming I'm in my home as well. So those are things that we then start looking to. But was that someone from the utility company who was informed that there was a gas leak? So they're trying to knock on your door vigorously to get your attention about this? I mean, could prob be, probably not. Could it be your neighbor coming home from a Christmas party that had one too many drinks and they're at the wrong house and they're trying to get in? Could it be somebody that's running away from somebody that's actually attacking them and they're desperately trying to, to get away and maybe get some help in your home? Right. So. I mean, don't get me wrong. We can all appreciate and we can all easily imagine scenarios where um, shooting you through the door would solve problems. But just as easily, we can all easily imagine scenarios where it will create horrific tragedies. So generically, Bob, I can't get behind shooting through doors. I get where you're coming from, don't get me wrong, but don't do it. Yeah, he didn't say if he could see the person on the other side. Right, yeah, I mean, if you've got a glass door and you can see that, I don't know this guy, and he's dressed up in a ski mask, and three of his buddies with ski masks and knives are out there too, right. different situation, right? Yep. But yeah. Yep. Ricky, Ricky asked, can having lasers slash red dot sights on a home defense weapon or EDC be detrimental in a case decision? Well, I assume we're talking about, so somebody's been involved, and in, by EDC, for those of you who don't know, we're talking about everyday, everyday carry. carry. Everyday carry, yep. EDC, everyday carry. Um, at the end of the day, again, look, prosecutors, law enforcement, they may try to spin things any which way. Um, if we're able to come back and obviously point out that consistent with your, with your education and consistent with your training, those lasers, that flashlight, that's to help you with target identification, that's to help you with target isolation, that's here to help you make a good shoot to stop the threat. Um, I think it's gonna help, and it may frankly avoid a catastrophe if push comes to shove, particularly in a, in a low light scenario in your home. Um, so look, bottom line here, Ricky, is can it be detrimental? Sure, because juries do strange things, um, any practicing criminal defense attorney should be able to tell you that. Juries do strange things. Um, prosecutors take intriguing and aggressive uh, perspectives on cases, let's say, sometimes. Um, but at the end of the day, that's something that doesn't fall outside the mainstream lane. And there's very good reasons for why you would want to have a flashlight to, you know, see what or who you're shooting. So can it be detrimental? Sure. Anything can be detrimental, right? Um, but... At the end of the day, to me, the pros outweigh the cons there. All right, I'm going to try to read this question. I'm not sure if I'm going to read it the way it was intended. What legal issues could a person find themselves in using a 80% firearm for home defense? Gotcha. Is reloaded ammunition still considered a no-no for self-defense? So two separate issues. One's the 80% firearm, your 80% Glocks, your 80% ARs, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and then we'll, we'll touch on the reloaded ammo. Let's talk about the 80% question. So for those of you who don't know, um, if it's possible, it's legal to go out, perfectly legal, to go out and to purchase a mostly constructive firearm, uh, though it's not constructed at that point because according to law, firearm only goes from that inert hunk of plastic or metal 
into a firearm once it crosses the 80% manufactured rate or, or mark, basically. So it's legal to go online and shop for something that, you know, kind of looks like the bottom part of a grip of a Glock or something like that, but it doesn't have all the holes drilled. It, it needs a couple more parts done to cross that 80% mark. Um, and there's various reasons which we won't get into for why someone may want to do that. A lot of it just, frankly, is based around the same things why people just putz with toy trains or, or, you know, like to repair that old VCR that they don't even own tapes for anymore. It's just, it's a hobby. It's, it's something that might be fun for lots of people to do. Um, but to that point, right, uh, if some sort of prosecutor or uh, law enforcement officer tries to make a big deal out of that and tries to make some sort of insinuation about you being some sort of weirdo or something like that, um, it is an extra issue for your defense attorney to be working with, to be sure. And again, I'm not saying that this is necessarily fair, because certainly you're acting within the law. And maybe your defense attorney could raise those objections in court to even having the prosecutor be able to allow to ask those questions in front of a jury. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that we're creating more moving parts, more moving pieces, uh, and you kind of get that tackleberry effect going back to the 80s series, the Police Academy of, boy, this guy's really too much into firearms. Does he really want to shoot someone? And again, we all know that's not what you're talking about here. We all know that that's what hopefully none of us are talking about here. But it does certainly invite some of those arguments into the minds of maybe a couple of those jurors on there. So to my way of thinking, I would not want to use an 80% lower firearm. Um, I get it. Uh, I would save that for hobby. I'd save that for hunting. I'd save that for something like that. Um, but I would want more of more of uh, less moving issues. We'll say for a for my EDC. That second part is reloaded ammunition is still considered a no-no for self-defense. From a training perspective, we we don't advise it um, when we're on the range. Most of the malfunctions that we see are caused by. Um, Reloaded ammo. Reloaded ammunition. Yeah. So we say, do you want to trust your life with something that's proven out over and over on the range to not be reliable? So we say go with the factory loads. Right. And, and that's from looking at from just, frankly, the practical, the meat and potatoes, practical side of surviving the shoot. Um, everything I just said about the 80% lowers could also apply to the reloaded ammo. And for those of you who don't know, reloaded ammo, it is legal to manufacture your own ammunition. So take the components of you know, the case, the powder, the primer, uh, and, and the round, and using some presses, some equipment that only can cost a couple hundred dollars, you can basically customize and tailor your own loads, your own ammo that you like. Um, and again, while that might be great from a hunting perspective, it may be a great way to save some money or, or whatever it might be, um, it invites issues into the case. Uh, and frankly, given how great, we live in, in a golden age of factory ammunition for self-defense right now. I mean, I don't know if it's ever been as good as what we've got. Right. You go into some websites, you go out there, and there is so much information about penetration, expansion, and, and so forth for all sorts of different calibers. Uh, it's not like we have a lack of good options. Right. We've got a ton of great options out there. So asking for me personally, I would say go factory ammo. Speaking as an attorney, I'd say that you invite sort of those tackleberry sort of issues. Again, not saying that's fair, just saying that's the truth. Tom asked, there are signs I see on doors to many businesses which state no weapons. They are just warnings. If I do carry in those places and am found that I am carrying, what do I say and what should I do? 
Well, number one, Tom, USCCA.com forward slash laws. And to be clear, I can never advise anybody to break a law, okay? So speaking as an attorney, what I would say is, is know the laws where you are. So in certain states, if they, if they catch you and you miss the sign going in, they catch you carrying, which for starters, if they catch you concealed carrying, you need to seriously reevaluate your equipment. You need to seriously reevaluate your training. So number one, something failed, maybe multiple things failed, and that's gonna be something you really need to be thinking about, you really need to be talking to a trainer about, okay? So number one, that. Number two is knowing those laws. So for instance, do they have to give you a warning and then you have the, the opportunity to leave? Um, what, what basically is the right way of handling it is gonna be framed in, within the discussion of what the laws are in your particular state or jurisdiction, okay? Um, generally speaking, the safe thing I could tell you, as any lawyer could tell you, is don't talk, don't say, you know, whatever it is that you may be planning on saying, because that's probably not going to be helpful to you. So um, you, you preserve as many legal options as possible by not admitting, not confirming, not denying, not, not going down any of those roads, all right? Um, because if somebody saw you and bothered to call the cops, there's a whole bunch of people in there with, with high blood pressure levels and heartbeats above 100, your heart rate's above 100 right now, um, and you getting anxious and confrontational, now the second call goes out to law enforcement of, yeah, the guy with the gun just got angry and he's screaming to people. You didn't improve your hand. <laughs> not from the, am I gonna survive my encounter law enforcement perspective, not with the courtroom perspective. Yeah, don't go to those places. Right. I keep on saying it all the time, just don't go to those places. Victoria, do I need upfront attorney fees if I have used deadly force in defending myself? Probably yes. Um, of course, that is unless you are a USCCA member. Um, but otherwise, I don't know any attorneys that work for an IOU. Okay, I, I don't. Um, and any, any, the very first piece of advice I ever got when I, when I left the state prosecutor's office and became a, def, a private bar defense attorney and I'm not gonna say it quite the same way because this is a family organization here, um, but the very first piece of, I, I, piece of advice I ever got from an old-timer attorney was get your money up front because so many clients screw their own defense attorneys. We've, we've gotten clients out of, at our firm, you know, major, major, um, you know, if they were convicted, they're looking at decades behind bars and then they'll stiff us on whatever fees they owed us still. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a rough world out there, and it is what it is, and that's the reason why odds are if you're hiring an experienced and seasoned defense attorney, they've been screwed by a lot of clients. They're not gonna take an IOU, okay? Yeah. And let's face it, it's a business. It's a business. You know, people, right. you, it's their career, it's right. their livelihood. Right. All right, let's see. In home defense, would use of EDC hand weapon be more or less defendable than a staged <laughs> rifle or shotgun? Well, we're assuming that there's no issues as far as overpenetration and all that kind of stuff might go with um, with the staged, you know, twelve gauge, you know, with your your double O buckshot or something like that, you know, ripping through things potentially. Um, I mean, look, part of it I would say gets back to the question of what do we have that's staged? Does it have a whole bunch of Punisher decals and all that kind of stuff on it, uh, or is it something that's you know? Um, a little bit more presentable and jury-friendly might be a way of thinking about it. Um, at the end of the day, the prosecutor is going to try to spin whatever it is that they're going to try to spin. Our primary concern is, of course, following our training, following our education, surviving the incident. If you're more comfortable using a shotgun, if you're more comfortable using a rifle and assuming that 
There's no overpenetration issues or anything like that. Obviously, gaining the capacity of a 30-round magazine by going to an AR-15 could be a tremendously powerful advantage to gain, and I'm not going to try to talk you out of that. But could that be used as pushback later on in court? I'm not going to try to say the prosecutor will never try to use that against you. There's always a give and take, and you got to follow, follow your training, follow your, your education as far as what's going to happen here. Um, I don't think that staged shotguns, staged, staged rifles should be a no-no, again, providing that we're following all the local laws and we are taking into account what directions I'm likely to be shooting in as well as over-penetration fears. Um, but don't be naive and think that that, you know, it may not be used against you. Well, we know how it's going to be reported. So if you use an AR to defend yourself in the house, that will be the storyline. Right. You know? Right. The so-and-so used an AR to protect themselves from a home invader. So suddenly it looks to those that are watching that news program right. like you're the bad guy. Right. I mean, it might. It might definitely, depending upon their political, political views and everything, yeah. which includes the jurors, by the way, because I assure you, one of the very first questions your prosecutor may ask, that prospective jury, um, who here owns a firearm? Who here is a member of any firearm organizations? They're going to do everything possible to disqualify everybody who might be remotely sympathetic on that jury. So if you go in there with that big, scary black rifle, we can all roll our eyes about it, yep. but that's, that's real, okay? Because you're not going to have a ton of... Probably no one watching this is, if, is going to be led on that jury. Let's put it that way. At least if the prosecutor does what I usually see them do, okay? I believe this is going to be the last question. All right. So it's from Travis. And Travis asks, when engaging in defense of someone else, should you warn the said attacker to give a chance to surrender? I think you're, well, how do you train people? So uh, if somebody starts attacking you, if somebody's pulling out a knife and walking towards you, 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 you mentioned you know, verbal judo, verbal commands and so forth. W what kind of commands should, should somebody be giving? We holler stop. We let that person understand that we're ready to defend. You know, stop. You know, don't come any closer. You're making me nervous. I'm calling 911. You know, do you go to the point where you tell them, I have a gun and I'm prepared to defend myself? It depends upon how that situation, if it continues to escalate, you may have to. When do you go to the gun? It all, again, depends upon the pressure that you're feeling from the person that's presenting a threat. Right. Right. And, um, you know, it, very rarely does somebody um, surrender when they're confronted with by an armed citizen defending him or herself. Actually, the vast majority of the time, I think it's like 90% of the time, they retreat, they flee, yeah. right? And that's what we're hoping for. <clears throat> that's what we're hoping for, which is why you always want to give them an opportunity to retreat. Don't corner them. You're, in essence, forcing them to fight right. or surrender, which is can be equally dangerous in a lot of scenarios. Right. Um, so you're, you're telling them to stop. You're telling them to do that. You're not police. You're not law enforcement. You're not ordering them to surrender. You're not zip-tying or handcuffing them or anything like that, which is super, super dangerous, by the way, to do, even for trained law enforcement officers with backup on site, let alone you at 3 a.m. when you were just woken up and you just had a long day um, and you're, you, haven't, you don't have all the training, you don't have the backup, you don't have all the proper gear and equipment, and now you're going to try to do that. So best-case scenario, they're running, okay? Um, that, that's best-case scenario. So, um, but you're trying to obviously stop the threat. Okay, so if they decide just to kneel down and surrender, well, thank goodness I didn't have to shoot them, but that might be a thank goodness I haven't had to shoot them yet if they do something. And you got to be prepared for that. All right. So, guys, um, something that I would just like to ask you, and, and if you've, you've seen these before, then you know what I'm going to say. 
Um, there's a little review, a little link that you should see below, a little button that says, you know, review Tom. Um, that should bring you to Divergent Family Law, which is the family wing of our criminal defense firm. Um, so they only handle uh, family cases. Guys, from all of us here at the office, these reviews mean a lot to us. Um, if you felt like you got even okay information, this is the internet. It's going to ask you to grade us on five stars. Four out of five is basically a failing grade. So if you felt like you got okay information, it would ask for a five-star review. It's these kind of reviews that allow us, allow me to come here to do this in the chat with, with Steve, with Kevin, and with all you folks as well. So if you can just take a moment, if you want to, you can also Google, you know, Grieve Law um, as well and just check us out and leave Google reviews and so forth. Guys, I do personally review, and I realize I haven't done this in a couple months. I've been candidly super busy at my end. I apologize. But I do, at some point, I will be individually going through, reading and responding to every single one of your reviews, okay? So just in advance, not only for myself, but as everybody back at the office, we tremendously appreciate you taking that few moments to click that link, to Google, Grieve Law, leave as many reviews as you're willing and able to. I would ask for five stars, and thank you in advance. Yeah, this is definitely five-star value right here, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for joining us, and have a great day, everybody.